Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, open your Bibles up to Judges chapter 2, picking up where we left off. First two chapters of Judges are introductory, and they're setting the stage for what the historians were trying to tell us through the whole book of Judges. Chapter 3, we get to the first Judges, Othniel. And each judge goes through this pattern of not they're going the way that they want to go, and the Lord tries to bring them back. And it's this story of discipleship from the Lord to his people without the interruption of a king. So the whole book is kind of setting that up. In Judges 2, we don't go in the, this bothers us Westerners because it doesn't go in chronological order. Um, Jewish historians, when they want to make a point, they'll tell that history that makes that point. But when they go to another point, they don't care about timelines. They'll go back and recover territory that was already covered in the book of Joshua. But this time they're making a very different point with that history. So that's what we're going to get into tonight, starting with verse 1. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, 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 and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land where I swore to your, which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. So uh, this chapter is going to tell that chapter one told the story of Judah and Caleb. They started off on the right foot. Hi, Susan. And the rest of the tribes didn't fully drive out the Canaanites. They were supposed to send the Canaanites packing and they didn't. They started to just live among them. Uh, so we see that it, 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 they were not supposed to do this. Back, back in Exodus 23, way back in Exodus 23, they were supposed to dr- make no covenant with the Canaanites nor with their gods, Exodus 23:32. So they, chapter one, the main point is they made covenants with them. They took them as slaves. They made economic benefits with them. They lived side by side. And they even started to get pushed around by them because the tribe, tribe of Dan was wimpy and they just got pushed around. So concluding that last chapter, we get this passage from the angel of the Lord. Here we get what's called a Christophany in the Bible. This is a, we know it's a Christophany for a few reasons. First of all, the word angel in the English, in the Hebrew, that's the word malak. Malak means messenger or representative of God. It can be an angel or a being that is created by God, but in no case do messengers or angels put themselves in the first person or call themselves God, which in the first few verses we see that they do. So theologians then call this a Christophany. Before we knew the name of Jesus, Jesus showed up a bunch of times in the Bible. So I want to stop on that a little bit because this is kind of a significant point in Judges. It sets up the book of Judges with Jesus at the front of it. So uh, a Christophany then is an appearance of Christ prior to being named in the New Testament. And there's a bunch of these through the Old Testament. Um, it, we know it is because in the, it speaks in the first person. It says, I led you up. So if it was an angel, that would be a lie because an angel didn't necessarily lead them up. God led them up. And it indicates that the writer is saying this as they are God. 
and there's no quotes around it. They're speaking in the first person. Um, so I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the land. It's, so it's not like a messenger would speak. It's like God himself would speak if he was doing that. You see that in those verses? Um, so this is a biblical thread, and we've seen these biblical threads pop up as we've been going through the Bible. One of those threads is the place. We don't know that that's going to be Jerusalem where they build the temple, but from Genesis forward, God has promised a location or a place where he'll put his temple and his altar. And we also see that there's going to be a Messiah promised all the way back in the book of Genesis. There would be someone that God would raise up to conquer sin and death. Genesis 15.1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. The reward that was promised to Abraham's children was God himself. So in verse 1, when it says, Then the angel of the Lord, then the messenger of the Lord, came from Gilgal to Bochum, we actually see that God's fulfilling his promise, that he is their blessing and he's going to be there in the first person. With Joshua gone, God leads directly. If Joshua is a parallel to the church and Yeshua left at the end of Joshua or leaves at the end of the Gospels, then you have a Holy Spirit that comes and visits the new believers in the New Testament. We have the exact same thing here. They're left with their first round of decisions and there's a visitation from a messenger of God. So again, it's like Judges is still paralleling what's going on in the New Testament. Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and bring you into the place which I've prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. So even back in Exodus, this visitation of a messenger was promised by God. And so all of this is fulfilling that promise. Um, and then it goes on in Exodus 22, verse 20. 23 verse 21, it says, my name is in him. And God says that he's going to put his name in this person. The name hasn't been discovered yet. It's one of those progressive revelations. It's why the Jews got so excited when Jesus rose from the dead is because they finally knew the name of this person that was visiting them throughout history. But if you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So God speaks as though his voice or name being in him makes that person him himself. Thus we have this belief in a trinity, that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's in the Old Testament just like it's in the New Testament. It's not a new concept for the Jewish people. The new concept was is that Jesus proved he was that person. And that he was that visitor or visit thing. So it says in Exodus, my name is in him. And you, should, and you should obey his voice and do all that I speak as though this person speaks with God's voice. So when we see these first couple verses of Judges, the Jews would have been pretty excited that this person's speaking as though they are God. They're speaking with God's voice. This is the promise that they were given. Um, and so we see that this idea that Jehovah's name is not quite shared yet but this person will show the way. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned and I will not give my glory to any other? God's glory doesn't get shared with an angel. And even in the book of Revelation, when John says, oh, you he starts to bow, the angel stops him from doing that, saying, don't bow to me, I'm not God. I'm just an angel. So this isn't that kind of an angel because they're, they're speaking on God's behalf and in the first person. So if this angel has a name, or had a name, it's not shared in this book. Um, and so that's all we're really missing. We know his identity from Exodus 32. We just don't know the name of this personification of God. 
They're personally calling Israel to obey, and there's a warning that went with that. I hope you caught that. You're supposed to listen to him or else. Um, so Jesus is going to go forth and throughout the Old Testament. Micah 5.2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the... Oh, I went King James on this. Thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And in Micah we just see like, this person's gone back and forth between the heavenly hosts and earth for a long time. We just don't know the name of this person. So I just thought that was kind of cool. We also saw him back in Joshua, commander of the armies of the Lord, spoke on behalf of God, was directly guiding Israel, Joshua 5.15. And so we set up the expectation of the word, the angel, the commander, and when God appears, you're supposed to follow God. So when that happens, the thing is you got to know that that's God that appears, not a false God that appears. So John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the word, That language comes from what I just read, that God was going to put his word into a person. So in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness didn't comprehend it. So this idea that God is his word being embodied in a human being is a super powerful idea that gets introduced into world history at this point. And we start to get a little more detail in these first few verses of Judges 2. So we see that, and there's, then we see this appearance being something that they should listen to. A few more things about the first few verses. Gilgal the Bochum uh, is in the Hebrew, they were a rolling wheel and they went to weeping. Um, so the, the translation of those two words should say something. They were rocking it under Joshua, and now they're not because of chapter 1. They, none of them did what they were supposed to do. Um, so they went from Gilgal to Bochum. Uh, we see these reminders that keep coming up. Here we see the reminder of Egypt. that They, they weren't supposed to break covenant, um, and, and they were supposed to drive them out, and they didn't. Verse 2 says, you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? I think from God's perspective, there's, there's, it's not that God's bewildered by human beings, but he asks a rhetorical question because there's really no good answer to this question. And it's a question that should convict. It's like when a parent says, why were you playing with that? And it's not that there's a good answer for that question because the kid probably wasn't thinking, but it's to get the kid to start thinking. And God uses the same technique. It's a sharp, loving, and very direct question for the Israelites. And it cuts right to the core of what they're supposed to do. No matter how you answer that question, they've broken the covenant that they made, that they just made. Remember, they were all excited. They said three times, we'll follow you, we'll follow you, we'll follow you. And then just a few verses later, they're, they're breaking the covenant and it's not working. So it's a question without an answer. At the end of the day, they don't trust the power of God enough to fear God over the actions that they chose to take. And I think I struggle with the same thing. I know what God's promised. I know what he said. Actually doing it and carrying it out is a whole different kind of creator, creature. And that's the thing we struggle with. And that's kind of what I like about Judges is it shows that struggle of the walk that we all have to deal with. Verse 3 uses the phrase, thorns in your side. This was promised in Numbers 33. It was promised again in Joshua 23. This is the deal. Those Canaanites that you don't drive out are going to be a pain in your butt or a thorn in your side. And that's the arrangement. When you break covenant, that's what's going to happen. So you can see how this is setting up the book of Judges. 
It says there'll be a snare to you. I, I think it's interesting that there's two different things. There are thorns in your side, which are extremely painful, but you can get a thorn out and you can deal with it. But a snare is a different thing. It's not painful at all. But once you're in it, you're trapped and you can't get out. So they give two different images of what it's like. The snare thing for me, and I'll come back to this because I, I want to spend some time. This is a warning for us too. Snares aren't scary and evil. They're not little demons in red tights with pitchforks. Snares are the opposite of that. They look awesome. The whole point of a snare is that you're attracted to it. It's a barbecue meal sitting there in the middle of the forest, or it's a movie trailer appeal saying how great this movie's going to be, or it's, you know, when you, do, when you do a snare, you put hedging around it to try to direct the wildlife's traffic towards your snare. Snares are articulately set up and put together in order to get their prey. And God's saying the Canaanites are going to be doing that to you. They're going to be making it look really great, but at the end of the day, you're going to be trapped and caught in these situations. So another way to think of it is like sin doesn't look bad when you start it. It's appealing when you start it. It's like jumping off a building. It feels great for about 10 stories, right? It only hurts when you hit the ground. And sin is a lot like that. It doesn't really hurt until something really bad happens at the other end. So this idea that there's snares and thorns in life is one that I think we should pick up as we go through Judges. But for now, verse 4. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they're in Bochum, so that's appropriate. Um, then they called the name of that place, Bochum, weeping, that, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So there should be joy at this point because they've just taken the land. This should be a good moment for them. But that great moment, because they didn't do what they were told, has turned into a weeping, mournful moment. And I think sin does that. It takes what should be a joyful Christian life and it turns it into a miserable life. So they lifted up their voices and wept. They give this big emotional response. It feels like they're having a revival, but that's not what this is at all. It's a big emotional response with no substance to it because we'll see that in a few verses, right? The emotional reaction here is an example of a weak reaction to God. It's not a thoughtful, decided, resolute decision to follow God. It's an emotional just reaction to what God says. We're supposed to see this because chapter 1 already told us the end results. We've gone back in time. So we already know where this is going, and as a reader, we're supposed to read it like the writer wanted us to read it. We know that this is a fake response to God because we know the outcome of it was a bunch of failure. So when we truly repent and give action towards God, it should be more than just tears and sorrow. In fact, the enemy loves it when we're constantly putting ourselves in shame and telling ourselves that we've failed over and over and over again. And living that life of weeping and sorrow is not necessarily something God wants for us. Verse 5, they called the name of that place Bochum weeping and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So sin, when it's first tried, <laughs> should come with a divine voice like this happens. Like they have an angel of the Lord visit them. That's not going to happen for the rest of the book of Judges. He's going to use judges to come in and set things right. But the very first time, like when you're a little kid, the first time you do something really wrong, you know it's wrong when you're doing it. It's that when you repeat doing things that you know are wrong, that that voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter. But a lot of times when you're kids, when you're in the middle of it, you got that little voice that says, you probably shouldn't be doing this. But then you do it anyways. 
And then it gets easier and easier and easier as if you don't get caught and you don't see the immediate consequences of it. But you're still moving towards that snare. So it says they sacrifice. Sacrifice should be on first read. That should be the right thing to do, right? You give a sacrifice, you atone for your sin, you move on. There's a couple problems with that. One reading of this is the only place you're supposed to give sacrifice is at the altar of the Lord, which is at the tabernacle, right? So either this is right in front of the tabernacle and they're doing it the right way by giving sacrifice there, or the other condition is you only give sacrifice in the presence of the Lord himself, which can be done anywhere, which is why Abraham and Jacob built altars all over the place. They built altars where they encountered God himself. Another line of reasoning that this is a Christophany with this angel because they built an altar and gave sacrifice on the spot. So their understanding was that this was God coming in that thing. So different ways to read that idea that they sacrificed. Leviticus 17, if you want your reference, says you're only supposed to give sacrifice at the tabernacle or in the presence of God. So this is how this narrative ends. In, in, then in verse 6, we get into a new era when Joshua dismissed the people, the children of Israel, each went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Do you feel like you're going back in time a little bit? Because we've already done this. But this time, there's, I think we're really focusing on the, these ideas. From Exodus to nationhood, this is the conclusion of all of it. So you can go all the way from the book of Exodus when God said, I'm going to bring you out of the land, and I'm going to send someone to guide you to that land that this appearance of the angel at the end bookends that entire narrative thread. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Joshua, to here. So we come to that point and it says, and when Joshua dismissed the people, we're moving on with the word and to another narrative altogether. So read that angel appearance as kind of a conclusion to the grand narrative of them getting out of Egypt. From here forward, they always refer to themselves in Israel and then the Goyim are outside of Israel. So this changes the tone of the Bible too. So Joshua has also reminded them of God at this meeting. He admonished them too. We know that from the book of Joshua, that Joshua himself admonished them. Why are you still sitting here? Go out and take your territory. Um, they're supposed to be courageous in doing this, and they're supposed to keep all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, that you turn not aside therefrom, from the right or to the left, Joshua 23 at the end of the book. It implies that they were warned by God himself, they're warned by Joshua, they're warned by Moses and his books, and they're warned throughout their history and the writing of the law, which they have read out as a nation. They were supposed to do this the right way. So, But we get all these models of how people screw up. So for all of history, the Israelites, being in covenant with God, whether they obeyed or disobeyed, they're going to provide wonderful models for us to read throughout all of history, and I think even into eternity. So think of the gift that Israel gets to give through all of their suffering. So they went, they, they're supposed to possess. The writer wants us to see this by telling the failure first in chapter 1. They want us to understand the context of this. Chapter 1, they failed. Chapter 2, they were reminded before they went out and failed, and they were vowed to do it, and they had very good intentions. The point is, despite their great intentions, they still get snagged with sin. And great intentions don't keep you away from sin. There are things that do, but it's not your intentions. It's not our hope that we'll get better. It's Christ himself that has to intervene. Verse 7, 
so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done in Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. They buried him within the border of his inheritance in Timnaharis, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gosh. Oh, gosh. When all that generation had been gathered to their families, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, know the work which he had done for Israel. Oh, goodness. So the people that had seen God do fancy miracles stuck with God. Then they didn't teach their kids. And that's a problem. You can go from one generation to the next and you get totally different levels of faithfulness. So this is the same point that got made at the end of Joshua. In fact, it's almost word for word. If that feels really familiar as a passage, you're not, you know... You're not losing it in your head. It's, it's actually taken right uh, nearly from Joshua 24, um, and it's virtually the same. Servant of the Lord there um, is a new title that got added. Um, the writer of this book, when they give this account, add that title for Joshua. It's one of the differences. Deuteronomy 34.5, that title was only given to one other person, and that's Moses. So by calling him a servant to the Lord they elevate Joshua to being one of, almost one of the patriarchs for him. Like he was one of the people that was a servant to the Lord. Just a great title. And he was, and we know that from reading through it. Verse 10, it says, who did not know the Lord. Um, even if these people did the right thing in not teaching their kids, they're breaking a commandment. Because it says that you should teach the children of Israel all the statutes which Jehovah had spoken unto them by Moses uh, Leviticus 10.11, Deuteronomy 6.7, and you should teach them diligently unto your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You're supposed to teach your kids. And if you're not teaching your kids and you're not spreading the good news of what God has done in your own life, what do you think is going to happen to the country? So, and I've said this before, God works in the family unit, in the city unit, in the tribal unit, in the national unit. And he doesn't attack problems from the national level. The problems get attacked from the family level. So when the nation's going sour, the family needs need to get their act together. So he tells the nation, tend to yourselves. And he tells his servants, feed my sheep. And it's the same kind of thing. And when we talk about feeding in the Bible, that's an image for the word of God. They were supposed to teach the word of God to their family, and that's how they tend to themselves. This is based on your question from two weeks ago. So this is well, this is well repeated. Deuteronomy 4.10, Deuteronomy 11.19, Deuteronomy 31.19. They should have known the Lord God because if they were following God's command, they should have been teaching their kids themselves, not leaving it up to Sunday school. It should happen in the family. My kids are like, we know, Dad. Right? So memorials, feasts, laws, history, purpose, identity. That's what they were supposed to be doing. And that's a really quick summary of the entire book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? So that identity that they should have is going to set up their future reaction. They either have an identity of people growing in the Lord or they have an identity of people falling away from the Lord. And I hope for my life, I'm always growing closer to the Lord. If there's been a day where I've been further away, further closer to the Lord, then I'm backslidden. I want to get back to that place I was and get close to the Lord again and keep moving forward. In fact, I want to see how crazily I can follow the Lord and the Lord will still keep me, right? Like, how many jobs can I quit before the Lord just, you know, says, Sean, enough. You have to work at some place. So 
they're supposed to be doing these things. The purpose of the memorials, the feasts, the laws, the histories, the refuge cities, the, the years of Jubilee, the whole purpose of all of that was to give this nation this identity in Christ, that that's where you get your identity from. And it frames how they're supposed to act. So progressively, it should get easier to follow the Lord because you're enjoying the Lord's fruits and blessings. It also gets easier to live in sin when you enjoy whatever the blessings are of sin. So whatever patterns and habits we form, they actually stick. And modern psychology says that's the case. Do anything for 30, 40 days and it becomes a habit. So it doesn't matter if that habit's a good habit or a completely self-destructive habit. It will become a habit if you keep doing it. So if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety towards their own family and to requite their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God, 1 Timothy 5.4. When we show Christ to anybody, we should be thinking to ourselves, have I shown Christ to the people I live with first? And that home family should be someplace you do it. The next extension of that is your Bible study or your church from Sunday morning, right? Are you showing the love of Christ to the people you go to church with every week? And how can we do it? Like we should be plotting and planning how to do that as much as the people with the snares are plotting and planning to get us snared but we should be deliberately thinking, how do I love on the people around me and how do I do it in a way that Christ would do it? So we get better when we do that and it actually gets more fun. Verse 11, uh, Israel's unfaithfulness gets all summarized here. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. That's, verse 11 sticks out like a, it's a total 180 from what we've been reading from the book of Joshua. Like how did that just happen? And the end result is they're giving us the end of the book at the beginning. This is like an abstract in a scientific paper. Everything is told in the first paragraph. And then you decide if you want to read the paper or not. Right? We're going to keep reading the paper because we've vowed to get through the whole Bible. But that's what they're doing here. They're telling you the end of Judges. Verse 12, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. So when it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord, that's offensive enough. To do evil is offensive. To do it knowing that God can see you is even worse. I still remember that moment when Grant was like three, and we would <laughs> we'd be like, Grant, don't do that. And he would like look at us and, go, and walk away. But then the next day, he'd be sitting by it, and we'd just look at him like, does he remember? And he would look at us like, do they remember? And then he would do it right in front of us. And we were like, oh, you're in so much trouble. (laughs) It's so much worse when there's intention behind it, knowing the person can see you, right? If I steal from you when you don't see, but then I steal from you having you watch me, that's just insulting on top of greedy, right? There's a whole new level there. They do it in the sight of the Lord. The phrase is used seven times. Each one through the book is going to mark a whole new level of corruption for Israel. We get to go in the downward spiral, spiral with these folks. So this is the first of those seven times, and we'll see like what's going to go wrong. Um, I think for me, I kept asking, like with verse 11 being so striking, what does it look like to go from loving the Lord to doing evil in the sight of the Lord? And how do we do that? Because I think their intention, they vowed to follow the Lord at the end of Joshua. Like, that's their intention. Where did it go? And what happened to it? 
And how do I guard myself against that? So it's a lot easier to serve a God that we can control versus a God that controls us. And I think that's step one. If we can tell God who he is, that's a lot safer God than the God who tells us who we are. That's a God we have to change for. And that's a really tough thing. The Baals, or the word there is Baalbek, is a general term for husbands. The Baals of the Canaanites were the gods of fertility, rain, weather. They were lords or masters. The Baals were gods of power. They had power over things on the earth. And there's a collection of them. You see the phrase there? The, the gods, they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. You see the three prepositional phrases? They're everywhere. They're all over the place. They're common. They're not the big Moloch statues or the Ashroth poles on the hill. Well, maybe they're the poles on the hill. They're everywhere. It's anywhere you look that where you think there's power and it's not God. So this idea that there's a collection of them all around that are husbanding the stuff around the country, they serve that idea. And when you serve the Baals, you're, you're hoping to get something from them. This is the weird thing with like polytheism. You can pick whatever God you want, but the idea is you want something from that God. So you're serving yourself. And if there isn't a God, you just make one up. If you're the Greeks and Romans, just keep making up more gods and add, add them to your stories. So the idea, though, is that you're living for this life and you want something in this life. If you serve the balls, it's because you want good rain for your crops and you want to have more crops so that you can get rich. If you serve the Ashtaroths, which are at the end of verse 13, those were the gods of sex and love. So if you serve the Ashtaroths, it's because you're going after sex. So either way, you're serving what's in this life. The word forsook, they forsook the Lord, verse 13, is azab. It means to just let go. If we're supposed to cling to and guard after our faith, to just not tend to it is to forsake in, in the use of that Hebrew word. It's to just let go. And it's really, really easy. Um, letting go is not the same thing as actively hating God. It's just not tending to God, doing everything else in your life and not setting aside that time for the Lord. So we have this idea that they forsook, they let go of the Lord, and then when you do that, they started serving the Baals that were everywhere and all around them. And I want to sit on this thought for a little bit. It's not a direct rejection of Yahweh. This is important because I think the first step when the, they started doing this, they didn't see it as rejecting Yahweh. They're just living their lives doing their own thing. And that's not rejecting Yahweh. It's just not serving Yahweh. Does that make sense? Right? So forsaking is not the same thing as doing that. The gods, the gods of the people, the gods all around them, the word there is sabib. We've seen that before in the Old Testament. It means all over, roundabout, uh, ubiquitous. Everywhere you look, there's these gods all over the place. And so I think, well, does that happen? And how common are these gods? How mundane are they? This isn't like you're going to the temple of Zeus. This is stuff you just see in day-to-day -day life all over the place. It's the farmers sitting by the rail saying, I hope Baal's going to give us more rain. It's just everywhere. So then I started to think of mosquitoes. What are those things that are, like, honestly, there's the big assault, there's the Amicalites attacking Israel, but this isn't that at all. This is people trying to follow the Lord, and suddenly they find themselves not. And I thought, okay, well, what is all around us that's probably not a good thing, but we just, they're everywhere. And mosquitoes, they're even more places than we see. And the thing with mosquitoes, and you're going, yeah, this is kind of, 
stretch this metaphor a little bit. By the time you know the mosquito's there, it's already done the damage. It's already put its poison in your body. That's when you know it's there as the poison starts to sting a little bit. But that mosquito can be everywhere. You don't notice. They're nice, lightweight, little aerial things. They land on you. You don't notice. Like a fly lands on me. I notice that. Not mosquitoes. They're balls. They're really powerful at what they do, and they land, and you don't even feel them land. They can actually insert you with a needle. When I go to the hospital or the clinic and I have to get a shot, I feel that needle go in. Like, I cry a little bit. When a mosquito does it, I don't even feel it go in. It doesn't even register. And then they suck blood out of me. Don't notice that. It's when they replace that blood and put the poison in your body that you start to notice that they're there. And sometimes, good mosquitoes, the well-trained ones that will breed further, and the next generation will be even better at this, they get off, take out the needle, and fly off before you even know they're there and slap them. And you wake up in the morning, you got 20 mosquito bites on your leg. That's the balls. They're common. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. And you don't know they're doing damage until you're in the snare. You're just soaked in. You have to, at some level, if you want to beat sin at this kind of level, this distraction from God that makes you let go of God, you have to plan ahead. That's why Paul says, put on the armor of God. That's an action that we choose to take. It's not passive Christianity. It's an active Christianity. I have to get my study of the word in every week. I have to pray every day. I have to do these things or I won't be able to do what God wants me to do today. And to let go of that is to just say, I don't really care if I do what God wants me to do today. That's forsaking. It's just that walking away. So let's break down sin a little bit. And I hope we get some wisdom because I want to apply this before we move on. When we serve fake stuff, it's when we get too busy for God's stuff. Like, clock it. It only takes a little bit amount of time. When you serve stuff that's not real, you will find less and less time to serve the Lord. That allows for tons of excuses to not be all in on your walk with Christ. So, <laughs> for me, I was thinking, like, the more I do the things of God, the more I get excited about them. And I think that's why it's important to be faithful in those things that you're doing. If you're committed to a body of believers, a church, a fellowship, a Bible study like this one, you stay faithful in it. Because over time, you actually start to look forward to it. And I'm a real geek. Like, I, this week, I was looking forward to Bible study. And I knew it would be a small group this week. But I was just thinking, this is going to be a really fun week to be to listen to Zach's. Because I wonder what they're going to cook me. And I, and I spend the time thinking about and being excited about the stuff that God has going on in my life. That's pretty amazing. I have good friends that all they're thinking about right now is their fantasy football team. But I'd so much be rather thinking about Zach and Alyssa's cooking and, and the fellowship that you get. And when you go home on a Sunday night and you're just like, oh, that was a great way to start my week. That's so much better. So that excitement can grow. And the more you do God's stuff, the more the excitement grows until you get like Amy, right? And you're just bouncing with this enthusiasm that's overflowing for the Lord because you're about the Lord's business. The opposite happens with toys. When I got my Star Wars action figures when I was a kid, or G.I. Joe, I don't know if I'm dating, but they still make action figures, right? I'd be so excited when I got it and opened the package and smelled that new plastic smell. And then I'd play with it for an afternoon, and then it would be just part of the collection, and I'd forget about it. As a child, you learn as you grow into adulthood, toys and fake stuff don't last. But the God stuff does. The weird thing is we have to actively choose God's stuff. It's like a spiritual battle almost. And toys are so easy to go after. I don't have to try to love toys. 
I just get excited about them, right? They have little blue lights on them and stuff. So the asteroids are really easy to spot, right? And when we look at our world today, like I can't even look at a news feed without seeing bikinis. Have you guys noticed that? Right? And, and commercials, when you go walking through the mall and there's the advertisements everywhere, try to be a guy in this world and keep your eyes on your wife. It's really hard because the asteroids, that allure for sex and love is everywhere. On the other side of that is not just the pornographic stuff. It's the, the fake love stuff that's not God's kind of love. It's that emotional, like, romantic comedy style stuff that's out there. That's not really marriage. It's just this image of marriage that makes people really disappointed when it's, it doesn't prove to be real. So you got this idea that the Astros are just everywhere with the Canaanites. They're all over the place. These little statues shaped like naked people. And they put them all over the place and they become a snare. The Baals, little glowing screens that tell us when to plant our crops, when it'll rain, how, how, what clothing we should wear when we go out in the morning. Self-improvement guides, technological wonders that will change our life for the better. Um, you know, just those ideas, the, the, the idea of you empowerment is a Baal. If you just reach your inner self, you'll be a better person, right? Or just do it. If you just take control of your life, you'll be in charge. All of that is forsaking God. Because if God's the center of your life, you don't need to empower yourself. You're waiting for God to do all that work. So... This mastery over nature politics. Um, reading on this idea that humans can control things, that we, if only we get smart enough, we can make things better. Nature May 2021, Nature Magazine, I quote, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine recommended in March that the U.S. government establish a coordinated federal research program to investigate solar geoengineering. Do you know what this is, Zach? Okay, good. I get to teach an engineer something new. <laughs> it's the most explicit call yet from a major scientific body for a government research program, and it comes at the right time. Verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served the Baal and Ashtaroth. Listen to this service we're going to give this new wing of science. Costing the U.S. $100 million to $200 million over five years, the multi-agency program would explore the core environmental science of altering clouds or releasing particles on a large scale to make it rain and stop the drought. It's the ultimate idea that humans can have power over their environment through this thing. And it was balls for the ancient world. It's cloud seeding for our world, right? It's not a lot of difference. It's the same idea that humans are going to do something sacrifice to the Baals in order to get something, in order to have power over nature and the universe versus going to our Lord God who says, I make it rain. And so who makes it rain? Cloud seeding technologies or the Lord God Almighty? This is a tough concept. And in our world, we're so science, like we think science is neutral. I've met the scientists. I am a scientist. It's not neutral. There's an agenda there, and there's a thing that they're doing that's not necessarily following God. It's following after these, frankly, please don't mess with the atmosphere. Like, they can toy around in their own scientific laboratories, but when they start doing cloud seeding, we're going to mess the planet up because we have no idea how complex that stuff is. Um, so for $100 million, we could dig a well in every village on this planet. So if we're serving the Lord, I could, t I could find uses for $100 million. Like, we could get people fresh water all over this planet for that money. 
instead of cloud seeding. What a crazy thing. So anyways, sin is a tough concept because it starts really fun and simple. It turns into split attention, which turns into letting go of the things of God, which turns into really stupid stuff, which turns into slavery and hurtful behaviors that damages and hurts people in the place that we live. Sin's a nasty thing and the balls are like that. But when you pick on sin, the people that are thinking that it's just fun and entertaining are going to be like, what are you so worked up about? And the thing is, you know what? I'm just worked up for me and my heart and I'm just going to take care of me and my family. Like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. And that's what we're going to do. And it's what the Lord asks us to do. It says they forsook. So they don't actually reject God. They just walk towards other things. So humor me a bit because I think this is a big idea. For me at least, this is a huge idea. We don't see snares when we should see snares. We see things that are fun and entertaining. So let me walk you through a couple things. We can be really intentional about our lives too. We can. And sorry, Dan and Pam, because this is the first time you're visiting, second time you're visiting, and you get this first time. Sorry. <laughs> it's in Judges. We're dealing with sin and how they fell away. So we're going to deal with sin. So the idea of setting aside time for, I think this is why it's such a simple thing when God says, give me your Sabbath. Because all he's saying is give me one of your seven days every week. Just give it to me. And it's that thing that we get really sloppy with. But God's asking for that gently. But he's expecting that we give it to him too. So that time that we can set aside for God is super intentional. Bible study time on Sunday night, super intentional for for my family at least. Like everything else comes after that. And that's a tough thing. So when you take the time for the Lord, you get blessing. When you don't, you get curses. So notice this. Uh, We don't have a bunch of... A bunch of snares when we come to Bible study. It's designed intentionally. So let me give you an example. Um, We don't do Bible studies on books that aren't the Bible. We actually study the Bible. And we don't do, we don't watch TV at Bible study. Have you noticed that? Like we don't get together and just hang out and watch Bible. We don't have the TV on 24-7. We shut it off for Bible study. That's intentionality. We're just going to turn it off. Um, So we don't need to watch the news when we get together for Bible study. We have the good news. So we choose that. The world gets intense about human leaders. We get intense about Jesus Christ, our leader. And, and, and it just keeps going. The world, when you turn on that TV, has fear and doom waiting for you. We don't have that. We have security in Jesus Christ from whom we get our hope. Make sense? I mean, it's an, an opposition to the Lord, even though I'm picking on really little things. Hollywood makes fake mus- movies that amuse us. We have things to think about or be mused by and seek truth when we study the Word of God. We're choosing that other kind of thing to put our brain on. The world has millions of pastimes. We choose to spend time on the Word of God. And it's that kind of thing. There are constant distractions when we leave Bible study. Cell phones, texts. That's why I said beautiful like this would be the worst time in the world for a phone to go off. <laughs> we turn it all off at Bible study so that we can hear God speak to our hearts. Does that make sense? But when you leave here, it's just chaos. And it's constant interruptions all the time. So we get soap operas, not just on TV, but we get that drama at work. We get workplace politics. We get angling and, and people trying to move up the ladder. And then you come to Bible study and we just choose brotherly love and sisterly love. We're not trying to get up on each other or win points. We're just hanging out with each other. We can just be ourselves. At least that's the idea, Right? There's no Team Beat magazine, Cosmo, or Playboy sitting on the coffee table, right? 
Um, we do have, and we do choose to bring Calvary Chapel Magazine, which tells stories about what God's doing. And if there's other magazines like that, let us know and we'll subscribe. And some of you have grabbed those and taken them. We um, can, and I get emails now, since they put the pastor thing on me, I get these emails that are like marketing campaigns for your church. We don't do marketing campaigns. We just humble ourselves and give to each other freely, right? We try not to do business when we come to Bible study. We leave that for the world. Um, we can leave here and we can go out and try the latest gourmet food at the best restaurants out there, right? And I love doing this. But at Bible study, we just do a koinonia feast. We just eat mac and cheese all the way to the finest casey quail, right? We have the whole, th but that, it doesn't matter. We're just here to eat together. It's not about what we eat and we don't brag about how much we know about the food. Well, maybe some of us do, but out in the world, they do wine tastings, beer bashes, and, and now there's more and more ads for vodka and whiskey all over the place, right? The liquor advertise is getting harder, and I'm just being snarky now. We get the living water of the Holy Spirit. Like, we choose that over those things, right? Uh, we don't do weed here, and we don't do drugs. We are, we're not getting together to get high. There are people that do that out in the world, right? They get together, and the whole point is to get high together. We don't do that. We have the Holy Spirit and we actually, in a way, we get kind of lit off that. And you go home and you're like, it's so cool to see what the Lord's doing in people's lives and how he's moving and how he's meeting people's needs and helping people find jobs. And we get to share those stories every week. We get high on that. The world has fake destructive division going on in the streets. Right? And here we get forgiveness, redemption, and unity in Christ. We choose that. We set it aside. In this space, we have those things, right? Okay, I got one more. <laughs> At the end of the day, all that stuff for the world is a curse and it ends in lives destroyed. At the end of the day, all of this is a blessing and it helps renew and heal people's lives. Isn't that crazy? But God says, I want a gentle, humble spirit to come to me and, be, and, have, and give your burdens to me because my yoke is light and my burden is light and I, don't, and I want you to be free from all that. Or you go out in the world and it's constant hedging to move you towards the snares, the things that don't bear fruit, the things that destroy, but then you have this Bible pointing you in another direction. And frankly, God pretty much gave us his word and Jesus against all of that other stuff. And at the end of the day, the word has more power than all that other stuff. The Holy Spirit simply wins. And that to me blows me away too. It's all the best efforts of humans. Beloved, people I love, 1 John 4, 1, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets are out in the world. 1 John 4, 1. Sabib, the word is all around them. The balls are everywhere, and they're calling you in. How do you beat the mosquitoes? You either put a mosquito bomb in the lake, you move to the mountains and get the heck out of there. And that's God's plan A, is don't live with the Canaanites around you. Drive them out. Or last but not least, carry a good bug slapper. Like when you see the sin, crush it. And at least that mosquito will not be breeding anymore. But that's the last most bad way to deal with sin is when it's stinging you. The best way to deal with sin is don't let it have a place in your life. Choose to set aside time for God and let that be the thing that gets you juiced up every week. Simple. 
So are you half in with God or are you all in with God? You know I like that question. Remember, all of Judges is a warning for us to think about what went wrong with these people. The author of Judges sitting down going, what went wrong to get us in Babylon? How did we go off track? And they go all the way back to Joshua where things were good and they start showing, oh, look, we broke the covenant. And that's what we're getting here at the beginning of Judges. So with that, verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot with Israel. So there's global warming. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. First they seek after it, they forsake the Lord, and now they can't stand against it. And if you know people that have really fallen into sin and it wrecks their lives, it's absolutely devastating. So there, there we go. So it works in reverse too. If we ask for the Lord's help, he gives it. When they don't want the Lord's help, he lifts his hands and says, try it on your own for a little bit. Verse 15, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. That's not a good thing. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, he promised this would happen. And they were greatly distressed. This is part of why I went through all those kind of like the world has and then Bible, like this is what we have in the kingdom of God. The anger of the Lord is a reaction to a broken vow, a faithless covenant. It's better... Yeah, so... They had a covenant with God that was minimized or limited to this legal thing, Mosaic law. Hebrews 8.6 says, How much also is he the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises? We actually have a better promise and a more explicit example in Jesus Christ, we know the name of the person who broke sin and death, and we have that covenant by which we swear our lives to God, how much worse when we break that covenant than when the Israelites break this covenant? That's the point that's made in Hebrews. So when we see the anger of the Lord risen up there, it is a warning because that anger can turn towards people that break covenants with him. Calamity, I thought this was cool. If you look that word up in the Hebrew, they stole a word from Egypt. The word for calamity is Ra, which if you know Egyptian polytheism, that's their chief sun god or head most powerful god. And that's the word they gave for calamity or wickedness or evil. Um, the sun god of Egypt. Here it's just a big hot mess. <laughs> so the purpose is that they turn back um, to the Lord so because they've seen their foolishness. The whole point of all of this is so that Israel turns back to God. The calamity is not to be mean. The calamity is to bring them home. If my kids are going to not do their chores, there will be calamity in their life. Not good things will happen in their life because my hope isn't just to be mean to my kids. My hope is to bring them back into where they're doing life kind of in an orderly way, right? So the purpose is there is for turning back. It's pretty certain that when they go in these distractions, these snares, these falsehoods, when your life is in chaos and you just can't set aside that time for the Lord, uh, it is like driving a car blindfolded. It's just not a matter of when the accident's going to, or if the accident's going to happen. It's a matter of when it's going to happen. Like, where's that first moment and how bad will that accident be? And those of us that have lived a while, we've seen people that we knew from high school that calamity was coming. And it was just something you kind of know. The thing for me on this passage is that last word, they were greatly distressed. 
that means yasar. In the Hebrew, that means to be tied up or bound or burdened with something, to be distressed. And we use that word a lot. It's a common word because it's good pop psychology. But to be distressed is to be narrowed down. To stress something is to bend it, or, or, but to distress something is to narrow it and bind it so it can't move anymore. The idea with the, the, the balls all around, the mosquitoes everywhere, is at some point you just have to get into a sleeping bag and cover up and get the mosquitoes off you, right? You're bound, you have to bind yourself up because you're getting calamity from every direction. So the good part of this is our hearts should be increasingly stressing and bound to the work of God and the ministry and the gospel. And as we grow in our faith, we should be increasingly seeing ourselves as ambassadors of the king everywhere we go with everybody we deal with. Joy, life, some people are, are better at that than others with different gifts and talents, and we all do it differently. But we should be trying to be distressed by God. But in this, th that's not what this passage is. This is the bad version of it. <clears throat> They're stressed about people, work, weather, reputation, money, everything else, the Baals, all of them, all around. And these stresses or these false burdens, Lamentations 2.14, are a natural result of false gods. If you go after false gods, you get false burdens because there's ought-tos that come with all of that stuff. So they're bound up by the world and they don't feel like they can get away from it. So there's a distress that happens. Psalm 55.22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee and he will never suffer, suffer the righteous to be moved. A burden for Christ is the other use of this word that we see in the Bible. There's a burden for the Baals, a distressing. And then there's Galatians uh, 6.2. You get a burden for Christ, which results in a holy blessing. And it helps you to stand firm. So the prophets had burdens. Isaiah 21, Ezekiel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi, all had burdens for God, burdens for the Lord. You go through your life and you're going to be burdened by something. It's like we were made as little burden carriers. Like that's how we were invented by God is we were made to worship something. And that burden that we have is the thing that we're going to carry forward. When the prophets use that term burden, uh, it's that the Lord has given them something they have to share with people. They can't keep it in. David was burdened for his friend, Jonathan, 2 Samuel 1.26. Um, and he's also burdened for his people in the Psalms. Is that as a king, it was something he felt like he had to do. So this idea that we have a burden for Christ is this idea that we're tied up to Christ. We're bound with Christ. We're so intermingled with Christ that we have to move that forward. So we're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair, 2 Corinthians 4.8. The point of Christ and life in Christ is that we don't end up like the book of Judges. And that's the whole point. So the idea here is we see this contrast um, we simply choose to stress about God and not stress about all the world stuff. That's the difference. And Christians that try to stress about both find themselves torn in two different directions. And you can't serve both. All the balls around you or the balls, the balls that you have to juggle in the air, different kind of ball. Um, but we have to make that choice. Verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Okay, verse 16. When you see all this nasty stuff, and then God just brings in that graceful word, like, nevertheless, he still loves them. These Israelites, he's still going to take care of them. Praise the Lord for that, because I'm like that a lot, and I need a God who says, nevertheless, 
I still am going to discipline and show Sean how to do this stuff. Verse 17, yet they would not listen to their judges. Oh, shoot. But they played the harlot with other gods, even worse. And then they bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way of their, which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge who delivered them out of the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So here's the end of the abstract that those journals always start with. This is the book of Judges in a couple paragraphs right there. It's what we're about to read. Um, so again, not chronological. Um, it is a couple little things, and I, I get geeky about the numbers. There will be exactly 12 judges in the book of Judges. God uses the number 12 often when he's establishing a way or a government. There are 12 tribes for Israel. There are 12 disciples. There are 12 judges. So we're at this period of history where these 12 judges are going to be the attempt. The book of Revelation, uh, there's 144,000 witnesses that are left on the earth, 12 times 12 uh, or something to that effect. Nevertheless, the Lord's God's love is there and he blesses these people. It says in 17 that they played the harlot. Uh, I'm assuming everybody knows what a harlot is. Um, the image of marriage being similar to the covenant with God is one that we see throughout the Bible. That the marriage bed is sacred, or it should. You keep it that way. Um, and our fidelity to God is sacred, and we keep it that way. And when we go putting our heart after things in the world, we're cheating on our God when we do that. So that's a strong image. Verse 17, they turned quickly implies or has the connotation of enthusiasm. They went after this like a new Marvel movie release. They're lining up around the block to get into the club. Like there was an excitement to go after other things in the world. The Lord was then moved to pity. Um, I think it's important that when we see 18, it says the Lord was moved. Some people struggle with that theologically. Well, the God never moves. He never changes. God's not an idol. He's not a fake dead thing. He's a being that has, that has the ability to shift and react to things that happen, even though he's created those things. So when we see God was moved to pity, uh, it is a God that actually reacts to people. It does matter how hard you pray. It does matter how we react or talk to our God. The groaning that's here is neaka. It's a true prayer of pain. The sound of a wounded animal. The groaning that's there is someone who's crying out to the Lord because they have nothing else to do. And at that point, the Lord says, enough. We're going to take this pain away. So here's a thought. God sees them distressed. They groan and he pities. And in doing so, he reveals himself. He reveals himself to them even in their sin. And in the same way, God sought us before we even were redeemed. He went out and tried to get us into his life. Um, one question is, would the people of Israel fail to follow if they didn't get distressed? Like, this is a weird thought, right? What would happen if they did just follow the Lord all the way? Would they be weaker believers if they just followed the Lord? 
or does the distress actually help them over four or five hundred years in order to get more devout? Because the failings and then God's revelation through their distress was a way for them to get to know God. And for me at least, when I see that model in the Bible, and I hope I would never be this kind of person, but some people go through a lot of struggles before they meet their God. And it's at their bottom that they're able to see God is still graceful even when they're at their worst. And I would pray that I'd never have to be at that point to follow my Lord, but maybe that person is more is stronger for having gone through it than I am. Just a thought. We can discuss it afterwards if you want. Verse 19, they reverted and behaved more corruptly. Um, that's kind of sad um, that they just keep getting worse. Um, they did not cease from their own doings. I like that phrase too. This is synonymous, notice, with the idol worship of the Baals. So forsaking God or letting go of God and following after all that stuff that's everywhere and all around you is synonymous with their own doings. Just doing your own stuff every day is not following God, it's following yourself. So when we have no king in our heart and we do whatever we want, it's typically not what's good for us. Our own doings, in verse 19, are always things that we think are right for us. We never do our own thing and think it's horrible. Or maybe we do and we just are really guilty about it. But when we choose something, we choose it because we think it's the right move, right? But in the Bible, they did not cease from their own doings means they never halted their own decision-making to look at what God said in his word. They never changed their course based on what God was saying to them through the reading of the word, going to the rabbi, hanging out at tabernacle, worship, beasts. Those things had no impact on them. This is just kind of one of those things where I look around, I see this just everywhere, including in my own life. Like at some point, my own way of doing life has to be encountered by God and has to be affected by God. So we either learn, we improve, and we grow closer to God. We make order in the world. We write songs. We write, we draw, we think, we create things because those are things God's put in our heart, but we don't always do those because they're our own thing. A lot of those things are generated by a Holy Spirit that God's put in us, and they take effort to do that. You ever notice creative people have to like designate time to be creative? Because when we're doing it our own way, we'd rather just watch the baseball game. But creative people make time, and I think it's an interesting spiritual battle we all have. If you want to do the things of God, it almost always requires intention and time that you actually set aside and designate for those things. Uh, 19 also says, nor from their stubborn way. And don't be stubborn about it. Make the time for the Lord. Make the time for the Lord's kinds of activities that he's called out in his word. And then don't be stubborn about it. Stubborn is kosheh. It means, or koshesh, it means stiff-necked, hard, or obstinate. It's often used in reference to a mule that won't turn its head when you're trying to lead it. And when God tries to lead us and we don't turn our head, that stubbornness can come up. There's a way, Proverbs 14, 12, that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. We don't, we are, we can just fall asleep at the wheel and end up not doing the things of God. But to do the things of God, God requires us to have a little bit of motivation and to actually be intentional. So what I cling to should be the Lord. And this is really tough because this comes into the balance. So we talk about this in our family all the time. What's the balance between hobbies and doing the things of the Lord. And I would say, well, if you've done the things of the Lord and you do a hobby, there should be no shame or guilt in it. 
It's just, you're taking a breath. <sighs> God only asks, really, at the bare minimum, for one day a week. And the other six days a week, we're supposed to work and do with what we want with our time. So we can have our hobbies. They shouldn't be the things we pursue. Those should be the things we fall back on or we relax in, right? So we can have a Joshua relationship with the Lord or we can have a judge's relationship with the Lord. And so far, the judge's relationship is not off to a good start. We get to verse 20 and we still have the anger of the Lord, not the kind of relationship you want to have. But either one's a relationship with the Lord. And God loves the people of Israel, the children of Israel. He loves them in Joshua and he loves them in Judges. So you can kind of take your pick. And in both ones, you have a loving father. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Verse 14 said this too. And he said, because this nation, oh, this is interesting. This is, when he says nation there, the word is goy. What does goy mean? It means Gentiles. They're not Israel. He's, it's like when I say, honey, your kids are doing it again. Right? And they're using that language here. This is where that came from, I think. Because this nation has decreased my... It's, they're not Israel. They're not his nation. They're not his children. His children would never do this. right? And I just, I don't know. I like when I see those little bits in there. Biblical humor. Because this goy has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers. I told them. This is just like when I talked to my wife. I told them they should clean their rooms. Your children have not done it yet. I shouldn't pick on my kids so much. They actually cleaned their rooms this week. Didn't even have to ask them. Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, my voice is our third reason we think that's a Christophany at the beginning of the chapter. He says, it's my voice that came and talked to them. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations, Goy, which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. It doesn't matter to God if they obey or not. Either way, God's going to be revealed to the world. He'll be revealed to the world by how he disciplines Israel or by how he blesses Israel. And historically, they're either blessed or they're cursed as a nation. It's the weirdest national history in the hist in, of any other nation on earth. They are either amazingly blessed to where the whole world looks at them and goes, wow, look at their drip agriculture and look at their Nobel Peace Prizes and all the other awards they're winning and everything else. Or they think, wow, it, you certainly wouldn't want to be a Jew on planet Earth at this period of history. So in history, the, the Jewish people have been one or the other all the way through. And God, whether they keep the laws or not, God's going to still reveal himself and his power by how Israel is treated when they obey or disobey. Spiritual consequences in verse 20, if you live stupid, don't expect God to help you out. I mean, really, that's right. If you live wise and you obey his commandments, expect to be blessed. And it's a really simple kind of formula. Um, it says, I will no longer drive out. The worst punishment God can come up with for them right now is, I'm going to not do things for you anymore. And I just, I think, wow, when a nation starts to walk away from the Lord, the Lord just stops doing things for that nation. And we start to realize all the things he did for us as we have those things removed from our nation. And Israel's the same way. And I'm not saying America's Israel or anything like that. But don't expect in principle that if you're going to walk away from the Lord in all your ways, 
don't expect his blessings. It's not fair at, at the base, most common sense kind of level. It says that I may test. Again, we see this image that God does test his people. Um, in God's testing, the idea is that if we succeed in those tests, we get larger and larger opportunities. So the tests that he's giving them here are almost the opposite. He's going to give them trials so that he can see them overcome the trials. And through the judges, we're going to see that through the book of Judges. You get challenges in your life, sometimes from the enemy, sometimes from your own stupidity, and sometimes because God wants to test your mettle. So as a believer, we don't always know which of those three a challenge or a trial in our life is going to be. But we know a few things are coming down the road, right? All of human existence is a, a fatal endeavor. We're all headed that direction. We only have so many years on this earth, right? So at some point, we're going to hit health trials and physical trials. It's just bound to happen. Younger people, it's so far in the future, you don't even have to think about it. Uh, but the older you get, the closer you get to those tests where the Lord's saying, do you realize you got a reckoning at some point that you got to deal with? Those tests that he gives can be things that are events that happen, workplace situations. We all talk about them every week here. Um, some of those tests then are not due to our sin or anything we've done. I think that's a really dangerous theology. It could be because of something we've done, but not necessarily. Sometimes God wants us to grow and gives us opportunities to do that. Um, uh, so a great word study that you could do here is um, to look up the word test in the Bible. And you can look at all the uses of the word and the variety of ways God uses that word in our life for different things. And if you're going through a hard time, it's a good word study because then you can start to say, okay, maybe it's this, but maybe it's that. And you don't start beating yourself up. You start turning your attentions to the Lord instead of turning them on to yourself. So anyways, I'd encourage you. It's a good one. In the New Testament, I'll just give you one sample of going through the word test. The New Testament, I like this one from 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you're disqualified? The New Testament has the same idea. Live a life for Christ and we should be examining ourselves all the time if we're doing that. A lot of people are like, they'll ask things like, am I doing this right or am I living for the Lord? And it's like, if you're even asking that question, <laughs> you're, you're probably doing okay because God wants us to be asking those kinds of questions. How much more can I give to the Lord? How can I live more Christ-like? And he wants to do that at the pace that we can go at. Test all things. Hold fast to the things that are good. Don't forsake. Hold fast to the things that are good. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 We should be testing ourselves. We've already seen in Judges and Joshua, we should be taking heed to ourselves. So God doesn't have to. He wants us to do it independently. So this calamity can bring us all in. And the prosperity can be something that holds us in. Um, but we should definitely be living for the Lord, whether in calamity or in prosperity. It doesn't matter. We live in both. So this is not prosperity gospel. Because um, God tests, and that happens. And that, that it is not always going to be sunshine and roses. Sometimes there's testing. And often that's because God wants us to grow. Verse 23. Therefore the Lord left those nations, Goy again, without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Um, the, the therefore is there because of everything we just talked about. 
everything that's been in this study so far. God's going to help us fight sin if we want to and we ask, the book of Joshua. And God's going to let sin have us if we don't want God's help on it. And, and that those th- in the book of Judges. And we're going to see that throughout the book. Um, we got examples of asking, even in chapter 1, Joshua, Caleb, uh, Aksa, just re- the writer of Judges put that right in the first chapter. You do it God's way and you ask him for help, he helps like a good father. Um, but in chapter 2, we get a very different perspective. Like a good father, you screw off, you're going to have some reckonings with your, with your good father in heaven. If we don't want to go after God, he's often a gentleman about it and lets us go our own way. Okay, give it a try. That was my strategy. You've heard that before. It's like, as long as it wouldn't kill him, I was like, all right, give it a try. See what happens. And the kids soon learned not to trust me when I got that tone, right? <laughs> Because it would be like, no, Dad's got that tone. We likely should not try jumping off the roof. But I'd be like, yeah, it won't kill you. You know, we've got a hospital nearby, so give it a go. See what happens. We can be a goy or we can be with God. You know, God's going to let us go either way. It says, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Uh, Remember, the Hebrew here for Joshua is Yeshua, the Lord saves. Joshua's name then is the exact same version of the Greek name, Jesus. So that image stays through, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Jesus. So part of the idea of our sin in our life and how we pursue or walk after our life is we want to be in the hand of Joshua. We don't want to be in the hand of somebody else. We want to be in the hand of Yeshua. We want to be held in his hand. So, uh, you know, that's kind of one of those things. And this is a nice chapter for some, uh, kind of an altar call kind of thing. And we're all believers here. Um, but one question to ask is, are you in the hands of Jesus? Or are you constantly in calamity and being tested? And there's distress all over your life. Examine yourselves and test yourselves and do it with God instead of against God. Or are you heavily burdened with the things of this world? Or are you burdened with the calling of Christ and what he's asked you to do in your life? Where's your burden? What are you distressing about? And the yoke of God is easy and his burden is light. If you're stressed from the things of this world, groan out to God, right? It's all over in this chapter. Ask God to free you from that distress, from that thing. And I was thinking of the old hymn that says, would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? Well, there's power in the blood. There's power, power, wonder-working power. I like this song. It's hard to not sing it. In the blood of the Lamb, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. If you don't know the power of God, it's time to pray and ask God to bring that into your life so that you can experience that kind of power and not be under the burden of sin like we're going to be in for a good five, six weeks with the book of Judges. So we'll start next week with the first of the 12 judges, Othniel, who was mentioned in the last chapter. And we'll see how God brings in these people to set things right. And then the people fall back into it afterwards. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for chapter 2 of Judges. We thank you for warnings, Lord, and help us to not be stubborn about them. Help us to hear them, uh, to tend to them, to examine our hearts, uh, Lord, and not fall in the same way that the Israelites did. We thank you for their example that they set. Uh, And I pray, Lord, that we can avoid the snares and the traps of the Baals and the Ashtoreths just all around us and everywhere, Lord. We want to focus on you, and we don't want to be against those things. We want to be for you. Uh, Lord, may our abundant joy be something that 
uh, is so much more powerful and so much more appealing than the stuff of the world. Uh, may we constantly, Lord, be just seeking ways to be loving each other. Lord, I pray for each marriage in this uh, Bible study. May you help husbands and wives to tend to each other and love one another and show grace to one another. Uh, to our kids, to our grandparents, to our parents, Lord. May we just uh, minister to one another, Lord, and tend to our families uh, as the Israelites didn't do that. Uh, Lord, may we start with the ministry of the people we know. Uh, Lord, may that extend out from there. But Lord, may we just put a burden on ourselves to just show crazy love for one another, uh, to abandon the things of this world, Lord, for the love of you. And we just want to be in that boat. Help us to be all in, Lord. It's not something easy and it, it's not, definitely not our way and our natural tendency, Lord. So change our hearts, make us new. Uh, make us uh, humble servants of, of you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.